but I'm so grateful for the help that the team that I'm a part of, um, when we came up with this way of articulating what the Bible already articulates, okay, so we didn't come up with this. Uh, it comes, it really does come down to, we strongly believe this, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be made in his image, in Jesus' image. How do we do that? By acting like him. Well, great, how do we do that? And so it's not about how do we create a club or how do we, you know, no, our, 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 our goal is to become like Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by going, by recognizing that we are not, um, we're not here just to learn. We're not here to just experience something inwardly or even selfishly, but Jesus makes this commandment that we are to go, that we are to be very proactive in the spreading of the fame of him, the name of God, uh, to the rest of the world, beginning in our, I love to just say, hey, wherever you are, uh, in our communities, in our workplaces, uh, with our families, in our neighborhoods, uh, and then we actually travel all around the world. A group of people just got back from Nicaragua. Why? Because they believe that we should make a difference, and so Nicaragua was a recent place that we did that, and so going is a big part of that, and we don't just focus on missions. We also focus on being hands and feet of Jesus in our community and around the world, so that's a, there's an other directedness that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. The second piece is that we gather. We come together as family that we do. When we say that we're family, we really, really mean that, that there is an expectation that we have. Uh, today in, a, in an earlier Bible study, I was actually teaching a group of people. We were studying through First Thessalonians together, and I just kept describing, and it kind of stirred up a lot of emotions in me, um, just how grateful I am for the church. My wife and I, for whatever reason, um, uh, well, I, I know the reason. God's the reason. For the reason of God and the purposes of his church, we never worried about being in a place that we didn't know. So we packed up and we left our homeland and we left our family and we moved to Joplin, Missouri. Why? Because we just knew that God wanted us to be there. And we also knew that when we got there, there would be family, there would be Christian people that we would do life with. And everywhere we've gone, we have just been blown away by God's faithfulness through his people. Haven't we, babe? It's been, it's been amazing. So this is what we experience. And so we are to know one another and to love one another and to care for one another. If, if that's not true, then none of what I am going to say tonight is going to matter at all. If that is not at its very you know, essence true. The church matters. So we gather together and we talk about ways in which we do that. And then that last piece is the growing piece, which is that there is in us um, a, an expected, uh, kind of a, an anticipation in us that I will grow in my understanding, this is how we phrase it, that we will grow in our understanding and obedience to Jesus Christ. So the only way that we can truly like worship God is to know the truth about him. If I said, oh, you'll love God, he is this terrible person who hates you and who wants to kill you, and <laughs> you'd go, why am I worshiping him? But if I said, no, 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 actually he made you, and he loves you. He sent his son and he died for you. That even though you look at all the brokenness in your life, he loves you in spite of all of that. He's willing to, and then you go, wow, that makes me want to love him, right? The more I talk about God, the more that I want to love him. More that I, and the more that I know about him, the more I know that it's not just this, oh, isn't he cute, but isn't he magnificent? Isn't he awesome? Isn't he worthy of just, not just, oh, wow, I want to go give him a big hug, but sometimes I fall on my face before him because of his splendor. 
And I love to remind people that one of the reasons why our concerns and our troubles in this life, one of the reasons, not all, one of the reasons why our concerns and our troubles in this life can overwhelm us is because our version of God is too small. And if you knew more of who he was and you saw the reality of the fullness of him, I mean, everything's not going to melt away, but all of a sudden, me and my trouble in light of that finds perspective and meaning and hope, okay? And so we want to grow in our understanding. So hear me, I want to teach you, um, and I'm not the only one that's going to be speaking this semester, but we want to teach you about who God is, and we're going to use God's word, uh, this wonderful book that we trust that was given to him or given from him to us, and we're going to kind of come around it. We're going to be in 2 Timothy tonight. Um, I was talking to my good buddy Tom here, and I asked him, hey, it's only two verses tonight. Do you think I can get through it? And he said, I doubt it. Um, but there's always hope, right? We can always, we can always dream. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to go back. I want to talk a little bit about 1 Timothy. But th- we, this is kind of part of a study. Last semester, we went through 1 Timothy, verse by verse, word by word, looking at it and applying it to our lives. This semester, we're going to do 2 Timothy and Titus. Collectively, they are known as the pastoral epistles, okay, collectively. Interestingly enough, they all weren't written at the exact same time from the exact same location. There are some similarities, and I, I get why we have lumped them together, but they, they do have some unique aspects to them, and us looking at them and understanding them and then even knowing how they should be read and applied, it is, it is truly going to change our lives. Um, this is the book, the one that we will study this, this, this next one, 2 Timothy is the one that just talks about like how great the word of God is and how it is sharper than any, not, not sharper, double-edged sword, but how it is useful for uh, correcting and teaching and training up in righteousness. He tells Timothy, you need to preach the word in season and out of season. So the word of God matters, and the word of God is how we get our best and most reliable information about him. And so that's what we're focusing on. But let me, let me just remind you of this. By no means is our plan or our intention here is to feed our knowledge apart from our obedience to, okay? So I'm not going to call you tomorrow morning and say, hey, did you do everything I told you to do? I'm not going to do that, okay? We're grown-ups in here. But I hope that you recognize the connection. It's not just grow in understanding. It's grow in understanding and obedience. It's recognizing the, if this is who God is, well, then how do we live? If this is what God has said, then what do we do? If this is how God has promised, then how do we? And so we'll, we'll talk about that, but I promise you, the beauty of it is hopefully that the words that I teach or whoever is teaching will linger longer in you and you will actually begin to see your life molded and shaped by the word of God so that you are becoming more obedient to who he is. And, and by the way, the word for that, which is not a cool word for today, but it's a beautiful word, is actually holy. That we would become more holy, which is distinct and different. How do we do that? By being like the holy one. Who's that? God. Well, how do we do that? By knowing his word. So that's what we're going to be doing. So one of the things I want you to do um, is I want you to, if you have your Bible, you're not going to, I didn't hand this out to you, but if you have your Bible or take a look at the one in the pew, I want you to just grab it. Um, you can do it on your, on your smartphone or whatever. And I want you to just go to 1 Timothy. 
okay? First Timothy. And I wanna just kind of walk through that book so that you can get a little bit of an understanding of what we're dealing with so you don't come into it completely, uh, completely in the dark, although there is a little, bit of a, a little bit of a gap or a little bit of a distance. So of all of these three letters, we actually are gonna have two different recipients or two different audiences, and we're gonna have one particular author. So the author of 2 Timothy is the same as the author of 1 Timothy, which is going to be also the author of Titus, and the author is who? Paul. So he is the one who wrote it. Um, maybe when you went to church when you were a kid, they called him Saint Paul, okay? He is obviously, uh, arguably, maybe him and Peter, two of the most famous names that we would know of in the Bible, right? And I, I love this because um, I'm, Paul is truly one of my favorite people in the world. Um, of all the people in history that I would love to spend some time with, I would love to spend some time with him. Um, you may not know uh, everything about him, but let me just share with you some key aspects of his life that are absolutely critical. First of all, in his upbringing, he is Jewish, okay? So he comes from a Jewish family, and he is being trained in Jewish thinking. So he is a Jew of Jews. If you want a verse or a section of scripture to look at, look at Philippians chapter three, write this down in your notes. Philippians chapter three, you can get a a kind of a list of the pedigree of the apostle Paul, of Saint Paul, and he begins to describe all the great things. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He is a, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know what that means? It means not only does he know Hebrew, he speaks Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Of the sect that he belonged to, it was those who were the most religious and the most zealous for keeping the law. What are they called? Pharisees. Now, when we say that word, it's got a little negative connotation to it, doesn't it? Oh, you Pharisee. <gasps> Don't you call me a Pharisee. I'm not a Pharisee, right? It's got a negative connotation. When you read it in, in Philippians, it's like Paul's bragging a little bit about it. Because why? The word Pharisee means separate one. That's what it means, the separate ones. Those who take devotion to the Holy One so seriously that they want to follow every aspect of the law. So Paul is describing, and you need to know this about him, describing a relentless zeal for the Lord. So he's Jewish. He comes from this great tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. He knows the language. He has been trained in the most passionate, passionate of all the sects of Judaism. He is, he is of that, 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 that purest and that strongest and that most dedicated. And then he goes on to say, and as for the law, I was legalistically righteous. He says blameless, meaning I followed every aspect of it. And I'm incredibly zealous. And he talks about his zeal in this sense, so zealous was I of God that I persecuted the church. You need to know that about him. That this one that we're about to read wasn't always an insider. He grew up Jewish, yes, but he wasn't always an insider. Um, I've always wondered about what his interactions with Jesus at whatever level would have been. We don't know anything. I mean, before the Damascus Road. (laughs) I've often wondered, like, did he ever see him in Galilee? Like, have you ever wondered that? Like, did did they ever meet each other? Did they ever? Because, I mean, wouldn't that be weird, though? I mean, there's Jesus, and, and at that time he wasn't Paul. His name was what? Saul, Saul. And by that time, I mean, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He actually thought Jesus was a heretic, thought what he was doing was wrong, thought what he was doing was blasphemous. And what I find fascinating is, is that God in his 
I'm stealing a little bit from verse one of our text, but God in his divine plan and promise, God in his divine will looks down and sees Saul of Tarsus, this, from God's perspective, this rebellious one, this zealous but rebellious one, and God chooses him and says, I I want you, Saul. I want you to, to, to be the one who will proclaim, and this is the other part. So you guys, you guys got from like my description of him how Jewish he was, right? And when God called Saul of Tarsus to himself, he said, and I will appoint you to be what? The apostle, which is the word apostle, that's a great word. Do you remember what the word apostle means? We just want to put capital A apostle and go, really important person? Like more spiritual than everybody else? No, no, no. The apostle doesn't mean special person, um, you know, literally, or it literally means, apostle is just the Greek word for one who is sent, like an emissary. That's what, a, that's what an apostle is. An apostle is just one who is sent. And we want to capitalize it and turn it into a, like this powerful office. Oh, he's an apostle. No, it's one who is sent. So you, got, you have to catch the go-ness of that, of that idea. Paul, an apostle, Paul, one who has now been sent. And, and God said to him, um, I want you to know where I'm sending you. And he says to this Jewish expert, this zealous Jewish expert in the law, and I will send you to the Gentiles. <laughs> like, if, I mean, honestly, that is, that is crazy. That God takes, of all the people, of all, think about it this, like of all the disciples, right? Like, why didn't you pick... I want you to do it, Paul. This is what I find fascinating. So often when we look at things, we want to know, well, you know what would be really natural, or you know what would be really normal, or you know what would just kind of be the next natural step? And when I look at Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Apostle Paul, I realize that human reasoning has its profound limits. And that planning and organizing sometimes never leads us to where God ultimately intends. I just think if I was in Jerusalem and I'm looking around and let's have a meeting and strategize about how we can have some outreach into the world and we need someone to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I don't think I would have been the one going, I'll tell you, Saul would be great. I would go, no, we need somebody who, who naturally has an interest. Don't we talk like that? I mean, this is the part I want you to realize. Like God doesn't operate like that. God operates very different, doesn't he? God actually says things like, um, and this is what's fascinating. God says in, in previous times in the Bible, doesn't he say things like this? You look at the outward appearance. Like that's what you look at. I don't look at outward appearance. Who am I talking about? Who was it? King David. I want a king. I want you to anoint a king for me, Samuel. Samuel, take. I want you to go to, the, to Jesse and to his sons. And he looks at all of these sons and all these great, strong, masculine. These are, these are now these would be kings. And wait, wait, is it this one? God says, no. Is it this one? Because this one looks like a king. No. How about this one? No, it's not. Okay, well, like, who would it be? This one? Him. Why would it be him? And God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, here's what I love about that, is that when you look at Saul of Tarsus, God in his divine plan and purposes sees something in Saul that doesn't just go, he's zealous, he can use that. But no, his... his his zealous ability and his desires to pursue me, 
is what I'm going to take and I'm going to capitalize. And not only does he say in his conversion, Acts chapter 8, not only does he say in his conversion that he's going to go to the Gentiles, he actually says this, and I will show this man, this, make, this guy who makes other people suffer, this one who, when Stephen was executed, is standing there and they put the cloaks of the, the men who were going to stone Stephen, the first martyr of the church, so to speak. Um, they put the cloaks by his feet and Luke just records, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Okay? Saul was there giving approval to his death. And it's, it's this one who is causing suffering and God says, and I will show him that he must suffer great for my name. Wow. So the one who causes, and by the way, I don't think it's a punishment. Saul, Paul, certainly doesn't consider it to be like a punishment. Oh, God's just getting me back because of all the bad things I did. He doesn't talk like that at all, does he? He considers it a joy. He considers it a privilege, just like the other disciples did. A privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. I can get a little emotional when I think about this. Like, it's amazing to think about this man. And yet, let me tell you that as much as I can get rather emotional thinking of him and just the transformation that takes place and it causes me to even to look at people different and to ask God, how do I want to look at people the way that people look at people and I need to look at people the way you look at people and forgive me for trying to strategize beyond my ability and beyond my discernment. God, help me see this. And God, move and God, change in our lives. And I'm, okay, all of those prayers. He was still a man. I, I think that there is a little bit of hero worship that we have of people in the Bible that is actually misguided. I think if Paul were to walk in right now and we were to say, oh, we're just talking about you and you're the most incredible person in the world. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about you. And he would say, yeah, but like it really, you know, remember it wasn't about me, right? Like you remember I didn't live this great life so you would talk about me, right? And isn't that true? When we talk about the great men and women of the Bible and they become, don't they? Don't they sometimes in our own thinking become the point of the story? And you know what Paul would say? Please never preach me above Christ. Let me fade into the background. Let me somehow be like just a footnote on history in comparison to Jesus Christ. And that's that same kind of passion that he has. After all, it is by grace that the Apostle Paul was selected. We're going to see that in this text as well. Okay? So that's the background on the great saint, the one who was sent originally, Saul of Tarsus, now Paul. The audience for this book is going to be a young man named Timothy. Oh, I should probably add this. It's kind of silly that I'm just going to say I should probably add this. But although he was Jewish, he did have Roman citizenship. Okay, so he had Roman citizenship. It was a big deal, by the way. And he didn't have it by buying it. You could actually buy it. But he didn't have it that way. He had it in a very legitimate sense. And yet I find it fascinating that the Apostle Paul, which it came with some incredible privileges to be a Roman citizen. Some of my favorite thoughts about this great man has to do with the fact that he was very selective with it. One of my favorite accounts is um, he is being persecuted, which you, you are like, like flogged, okay, which you couldn't do to a Roman citizen, not without a court hearing. And he allows it all to happen. 
And then right when they're, they realize this, they realize what they've actually done, they begin to freak out. Paul never tells them. Paul says, hey, by the way, like, you, you do know you just flogged a Roman citizen. I, I promise you. I know what that kind of punishment looks like. I think I would be, the first time someone did something to me, Roman, Roman, but he doesn't. He literally takes it. And at the very end, when they want to try to cover it up, he says, yeah, you know, you're not going to cover this up. You're going to come out and escort me out of town. He never asks for retribution. He never asks for his pound of flesh. I really believe the reason why he did that was to bring credibility to the message. Paul always thought of Jesus first. Man, that's a great lesson for us to think about, right? He always thought of Jesus first. How can, how can anything I have, how can anything that I am somehow serve Jesus? That's who he is. Timothy is his audience. Timothy is the one who is receiving these books. Timothy is a follower of Jesus Christ. Timothy also comes from a Jewish family, but it's not just Jewish. Um, He also has some Greek in it as well. But Timothy follows under his great mother and his grandmother the history of the Christian faith. Paul brings in Timothy. We even use that phrase. Hi, my name is Jim, and I'm like a Timothy of... We talk about men from our congregation, young Timothys, meaning young people who are following under the the discipling or the tutelage of someone else. So we use Timothy as, as that kind of a name, and he's not the only one. There are a number of different people that were associates of the Apostle Paul, Silas and Barnabas and John Mark and a number of others that had a close connection to the Apostle Paul. Timothy apparently has a very close one with, with him. Again, the letter to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 2 I recommend that you write that down to go back if you want to see some stuff. So Philippians 3 gives you a preview into Saul, Paul, Saul's life. Philippians 2 gives you a little bit of a picture of Timothy. One of my favorite expressions of this young man of faith that Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says this, I have no one else like him who genuinely cares for you and the interests of Christ. He kind of links them together. Paul, Paul actually believes that if we love Jesus, we will love his church. And if we love his church, that's a natural way of loving Jesus. And Paul says, of Timothy, I have no one else like him. Now, by the way, it might mean I don't know anyone who loves the Philippian people like he does. But I, I think it, it'd be more than that. I think Paul is saying there is something about Timothy where he has a profound love for the people of God, for the church. That's who he is. Jewish heritage, follower of Jesus, and therefore a follower of the Apostle Paul as he is planting churches. And the occasion of, say, Timothy in general, and then I'll do 2 Timothy in particular for tonight, the occasion is that Timothy has been left behind. This is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He has been left behind in the city of Ephesus to put things into order there. So Paul says, hey, by the way, like while I was going on to Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, I left you behind in Ephesus, which would be further down in, um, into, into the Grecian inland. He says, I want you to stay there and I want you to do some things. And we're going to look at those real quickly. But I want you to order the church there at Ephesus. So there's a location that is going to take place. And I, I love these reminders that the Bible doesn't come to us with like tips and techniques. The Bible's not about, hey, you got five ways to make your life better and three ways to make your marriage happier. And No, it's about, let me explain to you how very real people in very real circumstances dealt with a very real God in a very real time. 
That's the Bible. And that's, by the way, what I need. I need to know, like, real instructions that happen to real people in real time. That's why these books actually matter. That's why I can find profound wisdom in them, because they're real, okay? A real Paul wrote to a real Timothy who's in a very real church on a very real mission. Set things in order. Set things in place. And so Paul writes 1 Timothy to give him instructions to do that. So let's take a quick look at 1 Timothy. So again, we can refresh our minds. Like I said, I'm going to do this real quick because I got two whole verses to make sure I get through tonight. So he begins by, some of these, by the way, some of these ideas are not going to be in 2 Timothy. That's why I want to underline them, okay? So they're going to kind of disappear, so to speak, unless you have your notes from last semester. He begins by warning them about false teachers, which is a good reminder, um, and he, he loves to use this phrase, I command you, Timothy, to do this. Sometimes the word command in our translation is actually used the word urge. It's a little stronger than, hey, I got some ideas. <laughs> that urge has got some real oompapa in it. Why? Because, listen to this, because wrong doctrine leads to wrong behavior. So for those people that go, oh, those are just beliefs. That's just, that's just doctrine. That's just what people believe. That really doesn't matter. No, no, no. When you believe, we're coming up to Sanctity of Life weekend, if you believe that babies inside the womb don't have the same rights as those outside, you do things. Do you not? If you don't believe things, it affects your behavior. If I don't believe that women are in any way, shape, or form equal to men, it'll, it'll, it won't it totally decide how I treat them? Totally. If I believe somehow um, that I can, my, my life is mine. Nobody can tell me how to live my life. If that is my belief, do you see how that kind of goes into a way of living? And I would even argue you can reverse that. So those people who live any way they want to live naturally then believe what? You can, you can look backwards, right? If they believe they can live any way they want, then they kind of believe they're in charge. And if they believe they're in charge, and you can, you can go back and forth between these two things. So the Apostle Paul in this book is going to constantly bring together these two ideas. You need to believe this so that you act like this. And by the way, act like this because you believe this. So I don't know how many times, Ryan, we've actually said this, Paul, we've actually said this when we teach here. Orthodoxy, what we believe, right doctrine, is intimately and uh, you know, perfectly combined to orthopraxy, right practice. Both of them matter. So you see there in chapter one, a warning against false teachers, and then right on the heels of that, like what Jesus Christ came to do, which is to save everybody. Look at, this is the purpose of Jesus Christ. So I want you to teach these things because this is what Jesus Christ did, and you're going to have people that are going to come along behind you and try to undo. I still remember, actually, last semester teaching this idea, and I remember talking about it as parents. As parents, don't you feel like there are so many people that are trying to undo everything you're trying to do? <laughs> do you not feel that way? Man, I just feel like everyone at school is trying to undo everything I'm teaching my kids. I just feel like everybody's trying to undo like that is in fact the work of God, that the world is trying to undo everything that God is doing. Or you could actually reverse it, that the world is broken and God is undoing that. That's one of the ways I like to look at it. He then goes on in, in chapter two and he talks about not only that Jesus Christ came for all, but in fact because of that, he now prays for all, that all might come to know. 
who Jesus Christ is and his plan. And then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul goes into some very uh, clear and very important pieces of what a church needs in order to faithfully follow God's plan, which are leaders. And, you know, again, I always wrestle with these statements. You know, we live in a time where there is this anti-authority Uh, bent that exists in the world. I have no idea. This is the only time I've ever lived in, only time I ever will live in. So I don't know if it's better or worse than other experiences or other times. I just know that God in all times appoints, and that's what Paul told Timothy to do, when you're in Ephesus, I want you to appoint people who will continue the mission that God gave me, that I've given you, and you will give it to them And he describes them in a number of different words. He describes them as elders. And he says, elders need to look like this. And by the way, there are deacons. The word literally just means servants. There are servant leaders who then look like this. And every step of the way, I love this admonition that the key attributes that the Apostle Paul is lifting up are attributes where they look like Christ. Tell me they're self-controlled. Tell me what they care for others. Tell me they manage their households well. Tell me that they, and he just lists all of these things, and all of those are not pictures of a perfect person. They're pictures of Jesus. This is who Jesus is, which is the goal of every single one of us. Chapter four, he then reminds us of the fact that, by the way, as time goes on, we will see this theme in 2 Timothy. As time goes on, there will be those who will say, I don't want to follow this anymore. I want to leave. I don't want any part of this. And he is, again, commanding Timothy to be on guard, to be on the lookout. Now, one of the dangers of, um, of being the person who's always on guard is they can just think, wow, you're, you're, just, you're kind of paranoid, aren't you? And no, in no way, shape, or form is the Apostle Paul paranoid. He is trying to bring the appropriate discernment and the appropriate response to the circumstances around him. I don't know if you like to study history. I love studying history. And one of my favorite parts of of, of history when I think of this idea that there will be problems, and I know that whenever someone says, I need to tell you about some problems, oh, don't be so negative. Don't be such a naysayer. I I honestly think of Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of England in the late 1830s, 1930s. In the late 1930s, when the whole world really was, man, things are happening in Germany. They're doing well, aren't they? They're doing well. Like, they're growing. They're, I mean, they're doing well. They're doing really, really well. And then there were those that were going, I don't think this is going to end well. I think something's happening that's not good. And Neville Chamberlain decided to proclaim, and this is the famous caption, right? You can still see it on the newspaper. Peace in our time. 1939, that's what he says. Peace in our time. Question, fool or wise? He's a fool. The Bible teaches us to proclaim peace where there is no peace. It's not just foolish. It's, It's irresponsible to the point of dangerous. It's just wrong to do that. Now, by the way, the Bible also warns against proclaiming danger when there's no danger, right? So it's not about just always proclaim danger. It's to rightly discern to rightly discern, and then to appropriately respond. And so Paul isn't panicked. He's not afraid. He's not, oh, I don't want this to end badly. No, no, no. Paul's saying, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. This is the the nature of things. And he always paints a picture of God is the one in charge. 
but this is our responsibility. I'm, I'm not a nervous parent per se. I'm not. But I also recognize that there are dangers to my children. And a good parent doesn't exaggerate those, but a good parent doesn't pretend those don't exist. A good parent, what? Rightly responds. And, and, and this is the part, and I want you to see this. I want you to get this. Not because I'm one of them, but because whether I'm one of them or not, it, it really doesn't matter. That our elders in the church, and this is why there has to be not just a, an appreciation for them in, a, in the generic sense, but definitely an appreciation for what they do. Like they have been appointed by God to help us, to lead us, to protect us, to, to guide us, to speak truth to us. And Paul says, listen, we'll never really have a healthy church. And the two things I want you to say is, not only do we need protecting, we need protecting. Not only do we need protecting, but also I, I would argue this, that one of the most Christian things that we can do, one of the most Christ-like things that we can do is actually to submit, to submit to the leaders that God appoints. That's true for all of us, you know, because I'm, I'm actually one with authority who is under authority, right? I've got, that, that, and that is so critical. And, and why do I keep bringing this up? I keep bringing this up because we live in a time and in a day and in an age where that is just laughed at, where that is just excluded, where that is pushed to the side. And, it, and it, it doesn't just break my heart. I mean, it actually concerns me. It concerns me that so many church leaders just assume, well, we really can't say anything because if we say anything, they'll just go to another church. So let's just not say anything. What? How can we not? We have to say something. We have to say something. Like the Bible tells us, we have to say something. Well, popular opinion. Okay, like, we're not in the popular opinion club. And I remember one of the first times that I read those statements where Paul says, I command you, Timothy, to command those. And I'm going, wow, that was a different day. That was, I mean, that doesn't work today. No, actually, it probably in some sense, I would argue this. It always works, and simultaneously, it's never fully worked. Because what I've actually found, this has been my experience, is that the true people of God recognize that, and the true people of God actually do respond to that. I've seen it happen. I have seen, I don't know what word to use, but I'm going to use this word, some of the most proud Okay? And I mean that in the good sense. So not, not, the, not the kind of pride that God's trying to humble, but just really gifted, capable, strong people bow to the authority of God as appointed in others. I really have. I would argue it's a profound sign of strength. I've seen, I've seen it happen. I've seen God's people just respond to God as he leads others. And that's really at the crux of all of this. And it just keeps going on. He talks about, hey, listen, chapter five, here are some instructions to the church. Chapter six, one of my most favorite statements from this whole thing is not only this idea of, um, of false teachers, but one of the lines that I find so interesting in 1 Timothy chapter six is when Paul says, and command those who are rich. Now, if there ever were a group of people that are hard to talk to. And you know what word I wanna use? This is what it is. It's not, it really isn't the money. It's the self-sufficiency that money provides. 
That's the, that, that's the kicker right there. It's the self-sufficiency. It's not money. It's the self-sufficiency. That's why it's not just money. It's also um, ethical behavior. It's, it's goodness. It's, 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 it's where I, I, don't, I can't even remember when I really need him. And what does Timothy say? Or what does Paul say to Timothy? I want you to remind them not to put, this is the instructions to the rich, do not put your hope or your trust in your self-reliance, but in God. And Timothy, you need to remind people of that. But they don't want to hear it. I don't care if they don't want to hear it. It's still your job to tell them that. Will you tell them that? I'll tell them. We'll see what happens. And you know what happened in Ephesus? People heard him and responded. People heard him and followed. A very great church was um, sustained in Ephesus for a very long time by the Spirit, by the working of Paul. He was there for a number of years in Ephesus. The continued work of Timothy. And so Timothy does his work in 1 Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy, okay, so... This is, 1 Timothy is written sometime in the early 60s, say 61 or 62. And the Apostle Paul, in that instance, he's probably somewhere up in the northern area when he writes this book to Timothy. Um, and now we're, we've got some distance or we've got some time that is actually happening. So this next book that we're about to read, so now into 2 Timothy, it appears that this is most likely still the context, possibly at some level, Okay. Um, we, we really don't know as much of the occasion as we do in the first one. But here is one thing that is absolutely critical that we do know. This book that we're looking at now, which is 2 Timothy, is the last letter that Paul will write. He is writing this one under imprisonment. We don't know where that is. Paul doesn't say, I'm in a prisoner in Caesarea. He spent two years there. I'm in prison in Jerusalem. He spent, okay. I'm in prison in Rome. Okay, we know that, Acts 28. So we know that in a number of different places, he spent some time in prison. And this is the last one. That's why it makes the most sense that where Paul is writing this last one is in Rome. Okay, he goes to Rome earlier in his life, in the late 50s, early 60s. He is then freed again from Rome, it appears, according to church history. He then maybe travels to Spain, maybe goes back to Greece and to Turkey. But the ending of his life, he is back in Rome. Um, there's a couple of testimonies that we have that he died during a persecution era that was going on in the city of Rome. We know that Nero died in 68. We know that in 64, there was a great persecution against the church, and one of the great church leaders was killed sometime in the Neronian, Nero, Neronian persecution, and that was Peter, right? So Peter's death is usually 65-ish, okay? Some people date Paul's death in 64. We really don't know. One of the earliest church historians, Eusebius, dates Paul's execution, his beheading, in 67, So you got somewhere in there, 64, when Nero's running rampant and killing a lot of people, 67, definitely, um, that's when the earliest account, Eusebius dates it then. We know in 68, Nero dies, and for some reason, we consider that to be kind of like a deadline. 
And so it's somewhere before that in those last few years that the Apostle Paul writes this letter. And he is speaking to Timothy. And the first letter is definitely, hey, in the church I want you to do this and I want you to prepare these leaders and I want you to teach these things. And the second one is like driven straight towards him. Timothy, I want to talk to you. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about um, who you are and what this is all about. And it, it's, it's like it's, it's way more focused. It's not about elders and it's not about, it's about, hey, this is what I need you to know. And it's definitely one of the most personal, uh, one of the most personal correspondence that the Apostle Paul gives. So just, just so we're, you're aware, when, when we, as we walk through this, we're just following it in the way that it's listed in the Bible. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. In the order that they were most likely written, it's 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. Okay? So what we are about to unpack is Paul's final words that he gives in prison before he is killed. That's what we have. So now let's unpack these final two verses and we will be done for tonight and ready to uh, look at the rest of the book coming back next week. So uh, for, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and you have already know who this person is, Paul. Uh, he starts every one of his letters that way, describing who he is. Um, one, the one letter that's always kind of caused some questions within the mind of the church is the letter of the, or, or to the Hebrews. And there is some debate, there is some doubt as to whether or not Paul did or did not write that letter. Um, one of the things is that Paul did not write, or Paul, sorry, did write that letter, but did not put his name on it because he was afraid it might be rejected because of his Gentile emphasis and he was writing to Jewish people and he was a little concerned, to which I always say, yeah, you know, that really describes the Apostle Paul. He was always afraid of popular opinion. No, he wasn't. <laughs> you can't tell me he was afraid of anything. He may have strategically chosen to, but... Listen, Paul puts his name on these letters. Why? And again, this is going back to that authority piece because he knew his name had credibility. Paul. And then he describes himself, and he doesn't always describe himself this way. Sometimes, in a few letters, he describes himself as a slave or a servant, a servant of Christ Jesus. But in this one here, he describes himself as an apostle. And you'll see how, how well that actually fits into the rest of this, uh, rest of this verse. Paul, an apostle, or one sent by who? So, and, and this is why it's important. The one who is doing the sending is the one that has the authority. That's where the authority lies. Who, who sent you? And if you want to think about it, think about it this way. Um, so when America sends an ambassador to another country, that ambassador is in fact the representative of that nation. This will be helpful actually on Sunday when we're talking about these people who own a, they, they have a vineyard and they decide to just take it over. And, and, and the owner of the vineyard keeps sending people to kind of get what the owner of the vineyard deserves. And the people who have the vineyard are like, yeah, we're just gonna treat these people terribly. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, well, I'll send my son, they'll respect him. And what they don't. They take the son and they say, hey, here's the heir. If we kill the heir, then we will be able to own the vineyard. And then Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says this, when the owner of the vineyard comes after they've murdered his son, what will the owner do? You might not need to come Sunday because this is my sermon, okay? He says, hey, what do you think the owner is gonna do? And you know what the Pharisees said? 
He will take those wretched people and he will bring them to a wretched end. Because if you mistreat the son of the owner of the vineyard, it is like a slap of the face of the owner. And the Apostle Paul is kind of having all of this as a little bit of a background. I am the Apostle Paul. I am one who has been sent. And I am one who has been sent actually by, and notice the the naming matters. Jesus is his name, right? Yeshua is his name. And Christ is his title. I don't know if I'll ever get tired of saying this. It seems like I say it all the time. The word Christ is the same as the word Messiah. Same word, just different languages, which is the same as the word anointed one. And so, by the way, I am someone, hear this, I am someone who has been sent by the anointed one, by the Messiah, by the Christ, whose name is Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So there is a profound sense of authority that is enacted in this beginning of the section. And by the way, some people say, well, why is he telling this to Timothy? Well, I mean, Paul even understood that although this comes to Timothy, these letters are most likely going to be shared. He's not bragging, but there has to be, you know, by what authority do you speak these things? This is what happened in our sermon last week. People are asking Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? By the authority of God, Jesus ultimately believes, because he's right, because he is God himself. An apostle of Christ Jesus by, so how did he get there? And this is what I love about this, why I wanted to go back and help you see the whole story of things. The apostle Paul was one sent, and that was the will of God. So how did we get here? How did we get from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the apostle? And the answer is, it was always the plan of God to bring us to this particular point. This is God's purpose. Um, One of the things that matters here is that it's good for us to recognize that the way in which sometimes the the world can operate is by assuming or by, by overreaching or overstepping our rights or our authority. And when we do that, by the way, this is what happens. When we overstep, the only way in which we can Um, uh, deal with power is through coercion, through manipulation, through exploitation. That's how the world operates. The world oversteps and the world overspeaks and the world then becomes a tyrant. But what we actually have here is Paul's not saying, you know, I I looked at this and and I just want to claim this. No, if you really go back and you take a look at it, no, Paul was going in a completely different direction. God interjected. God intervened. This was God's will. This was God's plan. I think Paul would tell you, man, I I had no intention of ending up here. So how'd you end up there? God stepped in and completely redirected my life. Let me give you a quick application. I'm I'm not trying to tell you in any sense of the word that you need to go back and take a look at your life and find your Damascus moment and recognize that, but... But there is something, again, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to say this is what First Tim, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 means. No, no, no. But this is something that is important for us to look at. The reason why I am part of this incredible kingdom is by the will of God. Like the plan of God. I think the Apostle Paul would go, yeah, that's not what I meant when I wrote that there, but that's actually true. 
Right? So often, and I've, this has been a little bit of a campaign of mine the last few years, so often I just, I meet parents or people, and the reason why they're Christian is because, you know, my parents were, and, you know, that's why in the end, and you really need to kind of raise your kids up that way so that will always be a good, strong Christian family. And, like, the Bible doesn't describe things that way. That's a more modern convention. The Bible actually describes all of us being messed up and all of us being lost, and God, by his grace and for his purposes, interjecting, um, speaking truth into, redirecting, uh, in, interrupting people's lives. So if I were to say to you, like, who are you? Hi, my name is Jim, small a apostle of Christ Jesus. How? Okay, I didn't have a Damascus moment, um, but it's actually by the will of God. Right? God revealed who he was to me, and by his grace and for his glory, um, I believe in him. Can you imagine just how that would change how you look at life to understand that you are a believer in part because of the will of God? Now, by the way, you get your story, right? So you don't get, you don't get to steal Paul's and therefore you can run around to meet Paul. No, 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 that's Paul's. But I have mine. And I'm, hear me, grateful for my parents. I really am incredibly grateful for my parents. Grateful for my upbringing. I'm not trying to diss anybody. But if you ask me why I'm a believer, I'll tell you why I'm a believer. Because God in his kindness revealed who he was to me and for some reason that I can't, ex I can't perfectly explain, I believe in Jesus Christ and I have a new life and a new name. By the will of God. Well, that's so different than, uh, well, you know, Grew up in a Christian home, went to church. Like, no wonder our young people are lost. No wonder our old people are lost. Everyone gets, is confused. So sure, we have different coming to's and awarenesses and aha moments. But I'll tell you, I am a follower of Jesus Christ because of the will of God. He continues on. Will of God, and that will, by the way, is not a generic will. Here's one of the problems. I'm a believer because of the will of God, and look what I have, and it's all about me. No, 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 no. This is what I love about the gospel. The gospel isn't, salvation, you know, this is what we've been talking about as a staff lately, right? Salvation is part of the gospel. The salvation and what we have in Christ is not the gospel. They're not equal, Okay? The gospel is the good news of the plan of God that we have in Christ. And salvation is a part of that. But what it really is all about is the reordering of the universe. Not just Jim's salvation. And what the Bible loves to teach and what I love to tell my Muslim friend is that what I am a part of is an eternal plan of God. It is an eternal will of God where he is bringing all of these things together for his glory. And I'm a small part of that. I'm a really, 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 really small part of that. But God enacting his will and for his purposes. And I'm in line with that. But it's so much bigger than that. So look at what he says. By the will of God, according to the promise of life. And if you go back and look in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he makes the point, Paul likes to point out that the life that we have is not just in this present life. It's in this present life, and it leads into the future. I love the reminder that what we actually have in Christ 
is both now and forever. Okay? So why do I believe like growing matters? So why, why, do you, why do you care so much about knowing who God is? And you want to know my answer? Because I planned to enjoy him forever. I plan to enjoy him forever. And so this isn't like, well, as long as you get into heaven, right? How many people do you think that walk into this room on a Sunday morning wonder like, okay, well, I'm going to heaven. What else is there? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, you don't get it. It's not about the destination. It's the one who is taking us there. And it's the one who is there. And it's the one who is now in me. It's the one, it's the one not the place. It's the one. That's why I love the reminder in, the, in, in old Jewish folklore, they would describe God as the place. He is the place, right? Because it's, it's him. And, and the apostle Paul says, by the will of God, according to or in accordance with the promise of life, both now and forevermore, of life that is, and notice this, this is not a small thing. Oh, it's just a prepositional phrase. Okay, but this prepositional phrase defines everything. The hope that we have, the promise of life that we have is what? In, got to make sure I get this right because order matters, in the Messiah Jesus. That's where life comes from. That's where hope comes from. That's where the purpose resides. Um, in a book that we're reading as a staff right now called The Hold in Our Holiness, uh, author Dennis, uh, I almost said Dennis DeYoung, that's the guy from Sticks. Uh, Kevin, thank you, Kevin DeYoung. He actually says in this, in this book, he says, a lot of people don't understand the Bible. And the reason why is that they don't understand that the Bible is about a holy God who will make a holy people who will one day live in a holy place. That's like what God is doing. That's kind of the order and that's the purpose of all of it. A holy God making a holy people and bringing them to this holy place in which he lives. See, so the hope that we have and all of that we have is, is literally, we don't have hope for a better future. We don't have hope for a, hey, let's, isn't, isn't life gonna get better? I have no idea if life's gonna get better. Actually, parts of 2 Timothy are gonna say, at least to his crowd, yeah, Timothy, it's just gonna get bad from here on out. You're such a downer. Why don't you be more positive? Well, I'm just gonna tell you. Remember Neville Chamberlain? Peace in our time. Not helpful, dude. But what am I saying? But we have hope in Christ Jesus. So what do we say when a couple loses a child? We have hope in Christ. But what do we say when someone has a promotion? It's not just bad things, by the way. Hey, by the way, be careful with the promotion thing because I know you're excited. We need to make sure we keep our hope in Christ. Man, but things are out of control. Do you know who won the presidency? Yeah, I do. I really don't care if you're excited or freaked out. Good news is, hope in Christ takes care of both of those, doesn't it? Takes care of both of those. You're too excited, put your hope in Christ. You're too depressed, put your hope in Christ. It's the answer all the time. Paul, an apostle, by Christ, by the will of God, in accordance with the hope that we have in his life that comes only in him. Verse two. To Timothy, <laughs> my beloved child, Grace, God's gift, God's, um, God's kindness, God's move towards us. 
We're going to talk a lot more about that this semester. God's grace, God's mercy, and those are different words. They're not the same. I mean, there's some overlap, but God's mercy to us. And so it's always good to remember that that God acts towards us. I know that people think he's not fair and he's kind of this and where has he been? But he is gracious and he is merciful. So grace and mercy and peace. I remember teaching this from 1 Timothy when Paul taught this. It's not the kind of peace that is actually tied to circumstance. It is the kind of peace that, that helps me through all circumstances. It's a shalom. Um, I, I, I get this question a lot with people. Well, I don't know if I have peace about that. Okay, but do you have peace? Right? Do you know people that kind of live their whole life about peace with that? I need to do that. I have peace with that. Okay, again, Neville Chamberlain said we had peace and we didn't. So it's not about what you feel or it's not about what you say. Do you know that, and this is what I did last semester in 1 Timothy 1. Do you, do you know that you and God are at peace in Christ? Do you know that? I'm asking you, do you know that? By the way, I don't think all of you should say yes. But do you know that you and God are no longer at war, but you are actually at shalom? You are at peace. And, and if you think about it, if I am at peace with the creator of the universe, there's no animosity. There's no animosity that the creator of the universe has with me because of my faith in his son, Jesus Christ. If that is actually true, then that kind of peace passes all understanding, does it not? And that kind of peace brings a peace. Again, I'm not, my body's going to be my body. I'm still going to have my thoughts, right? But they are ordered by the shalom that I have, the ultimate residing in that I know it is well with my soul. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Two verses, boom, done it. When we come back next week, we are going to jump in. I believe I've got all of the rest of the chapter to do. So if I can do two verses in an hour, I can do the rest of the chapter in an hour as well. I hope that you are challenged by this. I hope you have a greater appreciation for this one. We don't know as much, but I, I really do. I've got a real love for this one. And I want to just remind you in the end, these guys pale in comparison, right, to their Lord. He's the one. He is the one that we have life and hope and peace. God bless, and we will see you Sunday morning.